Many who had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some said, This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Now six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the house of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She brought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. We keep in mind that there are four gospel accounts. We know that Mark is briefest and earliest written. Mark was written about 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has a story. He said this event took place two days before the Passover, that Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper when a woman, unnamed, pours expensive perfume over his feet. She's rebuked. Jesus defends her. Matthew, writing about 20 years after Mark, doesn't have this story in his gospel at all. Luke doesn't have this story as taking place in Galilee, uh, in, in, in Judea, but instead in Galilee, where Luke has a story about a sinful woman, he says, who was one day so impressed with the forgiveness and acceptance she felt at the feet of Jesus that she wept onto his feet and quickly let down her hair and dried his feet with her hair. John says it was six days before Passover. That would have been Saturday night. Just as the sun had gone down, Sabbath was over, a dinner was prepared, and Jesus was invited to the dinner. It was in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It was Mary who brought the expensive perfume and put it onto Jesus' feet and wiped them. It's a significant story. Each gospel writer is trying to tell, tell us something a little bit different in the way he tells the story. This year, we're going to deal with the way John tells the story. It's a very significant one. In John's gospel, I think there are four major things to consider here. The first is the figure of Judas Iscariot. He is called in this passage a kleptes. That's the Greek word. We have it in English. The word kleptomaniac. You've heard that. Someone who just can't seem to keep from stealing things. Judas was a thief, according to John. Didn't really care about the poor. He would love to have seen a whole year's wages, one denarius for one hard day's work, more than 300 denarii put into the pouch so that he could steal from it. 
there are some really vile people in the world who seem to miss the significance of everything that's going on, are so absolutely centered on self that they just don't get anything else. We had the Academy Awards a couple of months ago where usually America's greatest films are honored. But there's always a special category for foreign-made films. Here in America, we've been told that films are usually made for 13-year-old boys. And so many of the films cost $200 million, $300 million to make, and they feature as many blown-up automobiles and airplanes as possible. And writers see how many four-letter words they can stuff into a single sentence. But in some countries of the world, they still have movies where people talk to each other. And Belgium is one of those. This past year in Belgium, there was a film made called The Kid with the Bike. Some of you have been to Belgium. You know that in Belgium, there's a French-speaking section of the country and a German-speaking section. This one was made in the French-speaking section, so the movie is in French, but it has English subtitles to it. It's a story about a teenage boy who's making a telephone call. He's calling his home. And as the phone rings and rings, suddenly there's a recording. This number is no longer in service. This number is no longer in service. And then we discover he's living in a state center for young people who have no other place to go. Only occasionally does he have telephone privilege, and when he has his turn at the phone, he dials the number, and it rings and rings, and then a recording says, this number is no longer in service. And gradually he has to face the fact that he's been abandoned. Not only has his father run off, he sold the kid's bicycle to get a little bit more money so he could run. He's abandoned him. And this is a movie about the kid with the bike. What will happen to the kid with the bike? The reviewer in the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Morgenstern, whose reviews I like very much, said this about the father. It's not that he's so vile. It's just that he's obtuse and hopelessly selfish. Hopelessly selfish. Isn't it amazing that one who had been so close to Jesus physically had heard him teach and preach, had seen all these marvelous things that Jesus was doing, and was still so completely obsessed with himself. So self-centered. Had he not heard Jesus say that those who keep trying to save their lives are losing them, and those who are trying to lose their lives on behalf of others are really saving them? Number two. Another central figure in this story is Martha. Martha, one of the sisters of Lazarus. We have another story about Martha and Mary, another dinner occasion at Bethany. Now, Bethany is a little village just over the top of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. 
when you see reporters giving you news from Jerusalem, they almost always stand right on the top of the Mount of Olives so that the moment they're on the television screen, you and I can see right past them the two mosques that sit on the top of the Temple Mount. You can see the gold-covered one called the Dome of the Rock, and you can see the other silver-looking one that's called El Aqsa Mosque. They sit right on top of the mount where once the famed Temple of Solomon stood. Recognizable all over the world, so the reporter is standing there on the top of this little hill with the camera showing you in the background, this person is in Jerusalem. But that reporter standing at the top of this little hill is looking right into the little village of Bethany. That's where it was. The Bible says about three miles. Well, it's that far if you go around the hill. If you go right over, it's a quarter mile. It's a quarter mile right outside the old wall of the city, just over the hill. And the Gospels agree that in the evenings that last week of Jesus' life, they went back to Bethany where they spent the night with friends. This is the Saturday night before, as John tells the story, and Martha is really busy. She's really, really busy getting this dinner prepared. On another occasion, Mary, her sister, sits with the men. As Jesus is telling these important things, Mary's sitting with all the men, and Martha's scurrying around trying to get dinner done. Finally, she complains to Jesus, tell my sister to come and help me. Jesus said, Martha, Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be denied her. So Martha is a good person. She just hasn't quite learned yet what is the better part and what's the lesser part. On Broadway, Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman has come back again. This time, Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing the leading role. This play is so significant that it doesn't come back to Broadway without some big name in the lead role. Dustin Hoffman played the role just a few years ago. Brian Dennehy played the role. George C. Scott played the role before his death. I read Death of a Salesman before I ever got to see it on stage. It haunted me because I knew everybody in that play. Arthur Miller's really writing about his own family, of course. His father was a salesman, a salesman caught up in the Great Depression of the 1930s who could not sell, and the family became destitute. He's writing about his own family, in a way, a family that he knew very well. Willie Loman is not a bad person, his sons, his wife, not bad people, just sometimes making bad decisions, meaning well, but making bad decisions. From the first moment of the play, when Willie comes on stage and drops this huge suitcase, we're never told what he's selling, but the suitcase seems to be awfully heavy. Willie's whole life is heavy. He's having a hard time carrying all these people who depend on him. It's the Great Depression, and he's not selling. 
When I first got out of seminary, Bishop Paul Martin appointed me to Memorial Drive Church in Houston, a very fast-growing church in a, in a booming area on the west side of the city. And I was told to ring doorbells and get the people down the aisle Sunday after Sunday. The senior minister said, if you'll come do this for us, I'll send you to sales seminars. Let them teach you how to sell. And so I went. I found it fascinating. I would sit in on these meetings where people were being taught how to sell automobiles, life insurance, stocks and bonds. I was in minister of evangelism at a Methodist church, but I was listening to how they tried to close the deal. I remember one of these men saying to this big group of salespeople, if you have four good prospects, good prospects, and you make four really good presentations, you'll make one sale. The problem, he said, is that sometimes you'll make 20 good calls on 20 good prospects and sell none. And when that happens, it's hard to knock at the next door. It's hard to pick up the phone. But those who can do it will sell four or five in a row. It will average out for you, he said. If you make four calls on four good prospects and make four good presentations, you'll make one sale. I know some of that frustration. Sometimes we have people I've been calling for months, and I've asked the right questions. What would it take for you to profess faith in Christ and be baptized? I don't know. What questions do you have? I don't know. How can I help you? I don't know. One of the speakers said, salespeople think the worst answer they can get is no, but that's not the worst answer. The worst answer is maybe. A no means you can move on. A yes is the best, but maybe is the worst. Willie's out there with the whole world on his shoulders. It's the Great Depression. He's selling nothing. You remember how the play ends? Willie finally decides that his boys are not getting ahead because they've never had capital. He never had capital. The rich get richer. And the only way he knows to help these two grown sons of his is to commit suicide by driving his car into a bridge abutment and letting them collect the life insurance. But as in much of the rest of his life, Willie doesn't read the fine print. He hasn't had the life insurance long enough. And though he does crash his car into the bridge abutment and he does die, the sons collect nothing. Nothing. There's a cemetery, a closing service. Willie has always imagined that when he dies, there'd be hundreds of people come with garlands and garlands of flowers. They're just a handful of folks. And as they start out of the cemetery, one of the sons says to the other, Hey, come on, hold up your head. It's the way Pop always said. Shine your shoes, comb your hair, straighten your tie. The whole world belongs to you. And the other says, That's what Pop always said. 
and he was always wrong. He was always wrong. There's no way the world can belong to you when you don't know who you are. Pop never really knew who he was. It's a sad play. It's a sad play, but it comes back again and again because if you read carefully, if you listen carefully, you know everybody in that play, good people, for sometimes choosing the not-so-good and making it the most important. Number three. The third important person here is Mary. Mary, the one with the expensive perfume. Can you imagine what was happening in Mary's heart? Her brother, whom she seemed to love with all her heart, has died. He's already been buried. And Jesus comes and calls their brother from the grave. Calls him out of the grave, and he gets up. 1859. There was a little black child born in this country who would be named by his parents Henry Tanner. Two years later, when he was barely a toddler, the Civil War began. And finally it was over. Black people had more rights and freedom in this country than they'd ever had before. And Henry wanted to be a painter. Lo and behold, he got to go to the Pennsylvania Institute of Fine Arts and study. He became a painter. But he discovered that even though it was a new day in the United States of America, it was still a really tough day for a lot of African Americans. And so he caught a ship and went to Paris where he heard that African Americans were treated better. And he was treated better. And Henry became a well-known painter. A patron heard about him and said, Henry... You're painting wonderful stuff about life in the United States, what you remember from growing up there. But the real market in Europe, religious paintings. I want you to go to the Holy Land. I'll pay your way. I want you to go and see these things for yourself. See if you don't get inspired to paint religious subject matter. Henry went, came back to Paris, painted. The patron said, go again. He sent him back to the Holy Land. Expenses paid. And again and again. And Henry really became known as an outstanding painter of religious scenes. His Daniel in the Lion's Den is really highly acclaimed. But the one I want to focus on this morning is the resurrection of Lazarus. It really is a beautiful canvas. Lazarus, dressed all in white, the color of resurrection. He's just sort of being lifted up from his grave, from where his body has been placed. Looks a little dazed in the eyes, not quite sure what's happened to him. Jesus is standing right over him. But look at the eyes of the sisters. Look into their faces. How excited they were that their brother who was truly dead, had been made alive. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. Number four, 
in this story as in all stories of the Bible, the right question is, but what is God doing here? What is God doing here? My father had lung cancer. Uh, he had major lung surgery done at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston. Gail and I were there for that surgery. Had a difficult time recovering from the surgery. Then chemo, radiation followed. And roughly a year later, MD Anderson said, we've done all we can do now. You need to be in touch with the hospice program in your community. Well, Carthage is a little town. There was no hospice program in Carthage, but there was one in Longview, about 35 miles away. And the people from that hospice group said, sure, they would come to Carthage. And so they would come, advise my mom, my brother, sister, their spouses about what, what seemed to be happening. We thought death was really, really close, and so Gail and I were going down every other weekend. Thursday night, when I would get through work, we would drive 310 miles, give my family a little bit of relief. Gail and I were just right there in the room, in the house uh, for 48 hours. We'd drive home late Saturday night. I'd preach to you on Sunday morning. He lived six more months. Six months we did that. But what I want to mention to you is one of the most horrible things about that was the cancer surfaced on his face on his chin, first of all, just a tiny little spot. And then it grew bigger and bigger and bigger. It smelled, really smelled. Hospice told my mom, my brother, sister, get candles, get candles. Vanilla candles cover more than most anything else. Get vanilla candles. And they got to the point that these vanilla candles just burned all around the walls there to do the best they could in taking away the stench of death. The last weekend, Gail and I were there Thursday night till Saturday night. We came home. I preached to you. Monday morning, I got a call that my dad had died. My brother said, he's died. I said, we'll be there as soon as we can get there. Now, my brother has two big, good-looking sons, and my sister has two good-looking sons. They were all in Texas at the time, and they rushed in. And these four big guys with my brother and my brother-in-law had cleaned that house before we could get there. The windows were all up. An October breeze was blowing through the house, and it smelled like a different place. This family has had the stench of death. Remember the sister saying to Jesus, Oh, you don't understand. He's been dead four days. His body has already started to smell. And now Lazarus is lying at the table for dinner. And this expensive perfume, John says, filled the house. The stench of death was gone. And the freshness of the resurrection has come. Marilyn King has written about growing up in McCook, Nebraska. I spoke at a Rotary convention there one time. I had no idea where McCook, Nebraska was until I went. 
A fellow named Ben Hormel was a zone director of Rotary International of the famous Hormel meatpacking family. He had broken away from the rest, had gone to McCook, Nebraska, and ran a big Chevrolet dealership there. He asked me to come to McCook, Nebraska for that event, and I went. So when I read this story, it vaguely, you know, registered me. I remember what McCook, Nebraska looked like. Marilyn grew up at the Episcopal Church in McCook, and she said that church had some of these beautiful old Tiffany windows. First Methodist Houston had some of those. They were truly magnificent. If you want to see what those kind of windows look like, you can go to the Jewish Museum here. They were able to buy some windows when a synagogue down in Houston uh, went out of business, was, was relocated, and they bought those beautiful windows. They're on display. You need to take a look at them sometime because they're really, really beautiful. At First Methodist Houston, uh, seven years I was there, I saw these magnificent windows with the sun coming through. So I can imagine what Marilyn was seeing. She said, from the time I was a little girl, I wanted to go to big church, and, and my mom would take me to big church. She said, I think I was about four when one Sunday the service was going on, and I was sitting there on the pew beside my mom looking at one of those windows, and it was the face of Jesus. And the sun got just to the right point that the windows just came alive. And I elbowed my mom and said, Look, God is smiling. And my mother said, Shh, it's just the sun. But I knew, I knew God was smiling. 